0: Welcome to Loop Me In, the podcast community for parents and carers on raising children with disabilities. Join presenters, Dr. Lisa Intelligi and Christine Christopoulos and their guests in sharing experiences, information and support ideas to help children with disabilities flourish. Loop Me In is brought to you weekly on platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher, to name a few. You can learn more, connect to the Loop Me In community and listen to more episodes on our website, loop-me-in.com.au.
1: Our next guest is writer, editor, author, and broadcaster, and not to mention a mother of two beautiful children, Arlo and Odette. Today, we talk to her about her book titled Special. Arlo, Melanie's son, has cerebral palsy, and in her book, she writes about his journey facing the diagnosis.
2: Welcome, Melanie. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real treat to be on your podcast. I just finished your book and I just found it
1: so relatable to the journey that we had, you know, 22 years ago. And, yeah, I must commend you on it. It was really, really interesting to read.
2: Thank you so much. Um, we were chatting before and I was saying it really, I love that you can get something out of it still, even 22 years, you know, into this gig where, you know, Allo's almost seven now and I, I actually struggle. I can't look at special because it's from such a raw Pained place for me, but I I love that it's helping parents who are right at that icky, tricky spot right at the start, and that you know, parents like yourself even can still get something out of it and relate to it. Did you journal, Melanie, through the process, or I did, and thank goodness because I could pull on some of those entries to use throughout the book. Because you do lose it, I find if you don't write in that really pain moment you lose it. And it's tricky because as a writer, you're not meant to write from your wounds. You're meant to write from your scars when you've sorted things out a bit. And special was a bit of both. There are journal entries in there. I think it starts with a journal entry. Um, And I'm really grateful that I did do that because it was very useful material to draw from.
1: I think you probably have to, don't you? Because when something like that happens, you kind of want to forget And you do forget. And then you look back and think, oh, God, it really was like that. So I can imagine, yeah, for yourself,
2: you probably popped that book away now and not wanting to. I can't look at it. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. I'm in such a different place now, obviously, with my family. I now work a lot in advocacy. I work for a disability organization called Higher Up. And so now I'm aware of, I guess, how to be a better advocate. I was only just starting out then. And there's language in there that doesn't sit well with me. And there's things in there I've said that I just, I would never say now, but um, I've had to sort of learn to just leave it, let it be, and let it help the
3: people who it will speak to, which are the people who are right at the start of this journey. We're the same though. I think that you do evolve. Thank God you do. Yes. In every aspect of life, don't you? But including in um, this sector where things move, you know, things that you say when you're starting out, you certainly don't think or would do or say now. That's just part of learning and being a human, isn't it?
2: It, exactly. and I'm having to learn to sort of forgive, you know, the fool that I was back then. You only know what you know. And when you know more, you do better. I think that's a, mm. a quote from someone who I'm completely ripping off now. But yeah, I, it's I, my, mental, my mental health means I can't look at it now because every time I look at it, I'm like, no, but um, I'm so happy it's out in the world in, you know, the form that it is and that it is helping people. What made you write it? Utter desperation. When we got Arlo's diagnosis, I was so scared. I was so sad. And the way that I process things is by writing and by talking to people. And I knew that it would be helpful for me to speak to other parents who, you know, were also raising kids with disability. But I did not want to sign up to the the support groups. I didn't want to Hmm. enter that space because I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to identify. As a parent to a child with disability, because at the time I thought that was the worst thing in the world. I couldn't even say the word disability in relation to my son. Mm -hmm. Like I said, so much has changed, but that's just being honest about where I was at. And I thought, well, a sneaky way to talk to parents is to say I'm writing a book and do what I know how to do. I've been working in magazines for years, I'm a writer. I can interview people. So that's what I did. And at the start, I don't actually think I thought there was really going to be a book that eventuated. It was more just a a mental health (laughs) exercise to help myself out. But as I was chatting to parents, you know, living all over the world, raising kids with all different kinds of disabilities, similar themes were coming up, similar coping Mm -hmm. strategies, similar feelings. Um, And I was like, wow, there's actually something here. And those similar things were forming, you know, chapter headings and sections in my head. And then I started putting post-its on my kitchen wall with ideas. And from those post-its, you know, specials started taking form. And then, you know, right after Odie, my daughter was born, I pitched it to a publisher, a few publishers and amazingly Ventura picked it up. So I got a book deal and then suddenly had to write, you know, the whole thing. Um, So it happened pretty quickly. But like I say, I think, you know, that's a good thing because had it dragged on, I would have lost, you know, lost the need to write it. Like I had to write this book to help myself. It was a very selfish pursuit. (laughs) But like I said, I am glad it's helping other people. But at the start, it was certainly just to help me. And
1: I think like you say in the book, there weren't many books out there for families like us. And like, you know, the books are just pretty much like a bit like that poem that you have in the book. Going to Holland, which I yes. have that piece of paper with that poem. Someone gave that to me when Matthew was two and I've kept it and showed my girls as they got older. To ex- And that kind of, the book's sort of even more helpful than that poem because you sort of just talk about even being in the paediatrician office and, and finding out, that Arlo had cerebral palsy and going oh my god what does that even mean and that's kind of how i felt and i'm sure there's families out there at the moment that get a diagnosis of autism or intellectual disability and go what does that even mean go home and try and
2: google it yeah look i didn't even want to know what yeah. that meant i was so scared and i you say you know there weren't many books out there and there there were lots of memoirs and there are some really good memoirs like kelly hampton's loom is amazing that really mm. helped me but I didn't want a memoir. I didn't want like a whole story. I just wanted all the useful stuff where people felt mm. better, where people shared how they felt better. So I didn't feel that that book existed yet. And I did. I shared, you know, our D-Day, our Diagnosis Day, which it was actually a pretty good one. Like we received that information in a really gentle way. Mm. Whereas as you would have read, some of the other parents in that, yeah, in special had terrible days where they were told you know one of them was told your child will never be a thinking person why on earth would you need to deliver that information how could you possibly know for a start and how is that helpful for a parent to hear at that point so you know we received our diagnosis in a beautiful way where the pediatrician said you know cerebral palsy is a really broad thing we need to wait and see Just love and support your child as you would have anyway. And it was left so open. And the pediatrician would have known, no doubt, that Arlo was going to be the quite profound, you know, level of cerebral palsy. My son now, he uses a wheelchair. He's non-speaking. He needs really significant support. But he's a really bright, beautiful, happy kid. And, you know, as we were chatting about earlier, if I'd been told your child will need a wheelchair at that six-month point, I would have died. I would not have been able to handle that information. And once we got to that point where he did need a wheelchair, we were like, yes, gimme, like bring it on. Like we were so ready for it and wanting it and we love it. So I just think at the start, you know, why are doctors delivering pieces mm-hmm. of information that they can't possibly know to be true? It's just, it's, it's not helpful for parents.
3: Yeah, Louis had a neurologist as he had cranio reconstructive surgery a couple of times. And his neurologist said to me, Mother, you know, uh, your son has autism. The best thing I can do for, for you is to uh, write your application for a carer's payment. Oh, wow. <laughs> what <Well, laughs> the best thing they can do for you? And, and all he was worried about was that Louis was, because he was like before, just before two, he um, or just two, and he was playing with these blocks and they were falling on the floor. That was what kind of really was interesting him more than the fact that you know, I had this son with a problem that I had knew nothing about. And yeah, it's horrendous. And I look back at it and i you know, I'm really cross with him. And as because I think at that stage you're very vulnerable too. And you're um in a position of low power. Mm-hmm. And I look at myself as as I know myself, and I wouldn't accept that sort of behavior from anybody in a normal circumstance, but because I had this child who was had been so sick. And, you know, I felt very vulnerable too. And I think that, you know, that's often the case, isn't it, that this, these diagnoses or this behaviour on behalf of some of the medical profession, they get away with it because somebody doesn't arc up and say, actually, that's not acceptable.
2: Well, we don't know. We're so new to the space. Mm-hmm. And the danger is you soak in every single word that mm-hmm. medical professional says, which is why it's so important that we educate. I'm doing some work with this beautiful organisation called 21 Gifts where we're writing something called a Hope Guide, which will be sent into hospitals to help medical professionals you know, in the art of delivering a diagnosis and how to do it while leaving lots of room for hope and only delivering information that is helpful, which, you know, will be great for parents. But I know that medical professionals are begging for this kind of information Mm -hmm. as well, because can you imagine how awful it is having to having to deliver this news? They want to be better at doing it. So hopefully we'll see change in this space and parents will not be being told that their child will not be a thinking person or, you know, things like that right on that day when, like you say, we are so vulnerable and we are just taking everything in and remembering it and letting it colour our
3: whole experience of this. Mm. Yeah, you know, I think that's a real um, need for education, isn't there? For um, And for GPs, we've had a couple of guests on, haven't we, Chris, that have talked yeah. about, you know, the impact of of, you know, just even going to see the doctor, let alone, you know, what happens in that transaction, or the services provided to people with disabilities, and that there's just a lack of awareness and training, and there just needs to be more of it, really.
2: Yeah, 100%. You get your good ones. You do get amazing ones who do it well, but more often than not, you don't. So there is so much education that needs to be done, but we're finding you know in my experience of educating in that area the the doctors and specialists are really open to it. They really really want to learn how to do better, which is great. For sure.
1: I think the nice part of your diagnosis day was when the pediatrician something that really stood out to me was the pediatrician said to you you'll be fine in your own home, but it'll be when you go out that it will be difficult. And it really stuck with me because I find that, you know, all the time, that it is fine in your own little bubble at home because it's your normal family. But yet when you go out into the world every day, you'll always come across something that makes you go, oh yeah, I do have a child with a disability because look at the way he's acting and look at that person looking at him.
2: Yeah, 100%. You'll come across a crappy attitude or a step or or a big crack in the pavement when you're trying to go for a walk it 100 it's it's the outside world it's society that we need you know to work on to make sure that there aren't these barriers you know attitudinal or otherwise that do remind you like oh yes my child does have challenges because we don't need that um but again I'm hopeful, you know, and the work I'm doing now in advocacy, I see that change is happening. Thank goodness for the NDIS. I think there's so much potential there and we've had a really great experience with it. It's it's really helped to support our family. So I'm I'm hopeful for the future.
1: And tell us about the, the chapter on denial and fear I found really interesting. It's the denial of sort of, you know, what does this mean for my child? It's not the child that I expected to have you know, the families you spoke to, what stood out to you the most in that those chapters?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I clung to denial really hard for a very long time. Mm. You know, this could not be happening to my son because in my head, disability equaled, you know, not a happy life. Again, mm. I was an idiot. So I've learned a lot since then, but back then that's how I felt. And it was just completely unacceptable to me that this would be happening to my son and my Family. And I just remember, you know, saying to my editor at the magazine I was working at at the time, I've decided this is going to be fine. I've just decided this is going to be 100% fine. And she was really kind. She was like, Oh, that's a brave decision. That sounds good. Whereas other families I found were more accepting. I think I was probably quite late to the party. The writing the book helped me a lot. And, and you know, that's another reason I'm really glad that I did it because God knows how long I would have simmered away in denial otherwise. But, um, I found other, you know, better parents than me were more accepting, way more proactive at the start, did lots of research, were quick to connect with other parents in those support groups on social media. I was really reluctant to do that for quite some time. I think with cerebral palsy as well, you can stay in denial a bit longer because it is so broad. So you can tell yourself, all right, he's going to have it in one finger and that's it. Whereas, you know, I've got other friends who have children with Down syndrome, genetic conditions that, you know, were diagnosed when, you know, they were still, the mum was still pregnant. And I think they sort of had to come on board a lot more quickly because, you know, there's no denying a Down syndrome diagnosis. Whereas I can't tell you the amount of times I Googled cerebral palsy misdiagnosis, trying to convince myself that no, they were surely wrong. Yes, I stayed in it. For ages, and you know, I I say, Oh, I shouldn't have, but it was a really nice place to stay. And I guess it meant, you know, I still went to mother's group, I still got a lot of, um, you know, the so called normal experience of early parenthood because I could. And you know, Arlo was a beautiful, smiling, engaged baby from day dot. As the months rolled on, he didn't meet a single motor milestone, so it got to the point where we could no longer deny that I had a lovely fuzzy, you know, a couple of months in denial of being a new mum. And
1: you don't want to take that away now,
2: do you? No. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. I am re- I feel really grateful that I had that and we did have that space, you know, for hope. Yeah, I feel super grateful for that.
1: And I think the fear, you talk a lot about the fear being just a waste of time and, you know, just living in hope is you know, a great thing to do because we don't know with our kids, like any diagnosis, it sort of no doesn't mean you get a list. Okay. These are all the things he's not going to do or he's going to do. So it's nice to have a bit of hope and hope that, Hey, maybe one day he will be able to do ABC like the other kids.
2: Totally. And I think, uh, you know, there's a part in the book, a chapter in the book on hope. And the beautiful thing about hope is that it changes as you evolve. So at the start, I was very much hoping Allah would be walking and talking because I couldn't fathom a future in which he didn't. And then once I learned that, okay, those things are not important at all, you know, my beautiful little boy, his body wasn't meant to walk and we're working on the talking, but he's found so many other ways of communicating now. So my hope for him now has changed. I just hope, you know, he has a beautiful, long, happy life, which, you know, looks to be happening. We're certainly on track for that. So Hope is great in that it's this wonderful changing thing that if you keep with you throughout this journey is so helpful and such a a wonderful yeah companion to have
3: throughout. Well, it keeps you it keeps you motivated to try. Absolutely. Otherwise everybody would just, you know, give up and see. What's the point? What's the point? Yeah. And what have you learned about yourself through this process with Allah? That I can be
2: confrontational if I need to be. I'm such a people pleaser. I hate confrontation, but I tell you what: if anyone says wheelchair bound to me now, they hear about it. You <laughs> know, wheelchair user. <laughs> he's made me so brave. You know, I stand up for him when he's not getting the support that he needs. So I've learned that about myself. I also think Arlo's made me a much better mother than I would have been. I was very much. Uh, I'm going to return to my work. Kids are going to be in daycare. Yeah, you know, that's that. And yeah, they both went to daycare, but I was certainly, you know, need to be a lot more involved and hands on. And, you know, there's another part you're reminding me a lot of special, actually. And it's nice. I'm remembering, remembering nice bits from it that I like. <laughs> there was a moment when I was in Coles with Alu and he was a baby, and, you know, he was meant to be in daycare and I was meant to be working, but that wasn't happening. And I had him with me and I was at the checkout and I was feeling a bit low because I could see other mothers with kids sitting easily and trolleys without support and buying you know age appropriate food for their kids whereas Arlo was still very much you know months behind and there was this lovely older woman in front of me who said oh what a beautiful baby and I was like oh thanks and she was like do you get to spend much time with him and I was like yeah every day (laughs) every day and that cried out but that wouldn't have happened like I wouldn't have Mm -hmm. been so involved and I wouldn't have had this Mm -hmm. beautiful time with him had we not been you know schlepping to daily appointments and doing all the early intervention and stuff so I guess you know I learned that I've got that in me I can be you know maternal and a hands-on mother which has been wonderful and I think it's made me better with Arlo's sister Odie as well yeah so I guess those would be the things I know that I can be confrontational and stand up for my family when I need to and that I can you know I can be a mothery mother as well and talking about
1: his sister, Odette, I think the, your chapter in siblings was great too because we do forget about them sometimes, don't we? We kind of focus on the child with a disability and, you know, I'll never forget going into Children's Hospital and talking to people there and they kept all they kept saying to me was focus on the other two, focus on the other two because you're automatically going to be there for the child with a disability because you have to be. But really, and it's the biggest thing my husband and I have tried to do in our in our lives with our other two girls. How have you brought up Odie that you think is different to what you would have?
2: Look, we try really hard to keep them the same as much as we can. They've both got pretty much identical bedrooms. Arlo's bed is hoisted up a bit and there, you know, his his equipment's in there and stuff. We try and do the same things with them. So we've very much tried to keep things level there in saying that Arlo of course needs us more he always will so we need to support him more we need to be more hands-on with him and Odie is starting to notice that you know she's almost five now and she'll say oh can you play with me and I'll be like oh I just have to change Arlo's nappy and do this and she's like oh but you always spend time with us so she's starting to notice it but where you know we're trying to make that okay by spending lots of one-on-one time with Odie as well, doing special things with her, you know, taking her out for special shopping trips and making sure that she gets time one-on-one with each of us, Ro, my partner, and me. We're super conscious of it, I think, like you guys are as well, which which helps. And it will be hard. I mean, she gets jealous of Arlo's kit. Like he has this great new chair that goes up and down and she is so jealous. And she's always trying to climb on his, you know, equipment and things. Um, (laughs) I'm just like, it's not a toy. You can't play on it. (laughs) But I think, you know, despite the fact there will be challenges and, you know, there are moments where I feel bad because Arlo is getting more attention the good stuff that Odie is getting out of growing up, you know, with a brother with disability, I think will far outweigh that. I wish I grew up around kids with disability because had that happened when we got Arlo's diagnosis, I think I would have had a very different reaction and I wouldn't have thought it was the end of the world because it's not. And if you see that, if you're around people with disability, if they're included across every aspect of life, you're not going to think it's a bad thing because you'll see that it's not. So I love that she's just got that perspective baked in and you know I see that in Arlo's got so many friends in all his schools that he's been in his daycare his preschool and I see that his friends and those kids just being awesome and not seeing his differences as an issue and finding different ways to play and communicate so yeah I think the good that's coming out of Odie's relationship with Arlo will hopefully far outweigh any of the the challenges and tricky bits that she'll have with it.
3: Yeah I think definitely um Our kids are very uh, empathetic and caring and and we did a podcast with um, Marilena, Chris's um, oldest daughter, and my son who's older than Louis. One of the things that I learned through that because we don't have that direct conversation necessarily or get the same response from them, but we had um, Heidi who has a brother with a disability um, talk to them and Remy said that he because our attention, we were very busy trying to cope with Louis at that stage, he learnt not to create a scene. Mm. And, you know, that was, you know, I think if I if I had any advice for you because um, you've got younger children than we have is get her to make a scene. Oh, no, <laughs> like, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You want kind to of feel like you can't, you know, you can't be yourself because people's attention is on somebody else so you've got to kind of you know manage stress as a young age for the whole family effectively Mm. and um yeah that was something that you know we we found all these insights that we didn't know but you know by that stage our kids are older so
2: I know I have I have so much to learn from you guys especially when it comes to I mean Odie's still having tantrums so she's very much making scenes but I (laughs) sense that she probably will step back and be quiet and maybe not tell me things not bring problems to me because she knows that we've already got a lot going on with Arlo so that is great advice to what do you do do you sort of say like do you have anything to tell me or do you want to talk about anything or how, how do you bring that out of your kids
3: Oh, no, we're not. Because this was only done like 12 months ago, like our kids are then in their sort of early to mid-20s now. So they're adults and, you know, they have a different perspective. It's just more as children, you know, uh, Remy didn't have parties Mm. because he didn't want to make a, he didn't want to create additional workload or fuss, you know. So, you know, just making sure that, They can make fuss, you know, Mm. they can drag attention. They're given attention is really important, I think.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think the advice I can give you is we've always seen a psychologist. We have a family one and I drag my daughters there. And they're (laughs) like, you know, at 13, my eldest was like, why would I want to speak to anyone? Like I I love Matthew, you know, it's fine. But the minute she got in there and it stood out to me the most, she was 13, she was about to start a new school, new friends, Because, you know, starting primary school, she came with her kinder friends and they all knew Matthew. So it was nothing new. And she said to the psychologist, you know, I'm starting a new school. You know, I've got to meet new people. And I'm actually really scared to tell mom and dad that how do I tell them about Matthew? You know, I just, he's just my brother, but I don't know these girls. I don't know how they're going to act. And she said, She had strategies for that and, you know, there's always something that comes up even like a few years ago. They both went in there and they both admitted that they were scared about the future and, you know, what happens when, you know, mum and dad, they think we're old now. What happens (laughs) when mum and dad aren't around? Like do they want us to have Matthew live with us? And, you you know, you brought it up in your book where a mum, I think her name was Elisa and she had a little girl and the little, the brother was in hospital and the little girl actually said, you know, gee, he's a lot of work. And she was so scared that she said that, but that's okay to say that because we think it too sometimes. And I think it's important to really talk to them all the time. There's always something that will come up
2: for them, but they're just too scared to say it out loud. I love the idea of Odie seeing a psychologist, both my partner and I see our own Separate therapist. I love the idea of her having that outlet because it's hard, mm. especially when you're, you know, an advocate for your child, which we all automatically are. When you hear the other one say something like, oh, it's really hard, isn't it? I spring into, no, it's not, you know, yeah. like instantly. So I'm probably, <laughs> and I have to right, retrain myself to be open to, of course, you know, yes, and please tell me how you're feeling. But I think if she has that external support, that would be so helpful for her. I think that's amazing advice.
1: Yeah, it, it, you know, things like your book and the, you know, it's just, I guess you talk a lot about community and how you've made a lot of friends in the community. And that's what Lisa and I are trying to do with our podcast, because that's another area. It's just so nice to have a community of people that you can work with. And even your kids can talk to your other siblings. It's sure your community is building very strongly
2: now that Arlo and Odie are going into school and we were worried because we've moved to Southern Highlands from Sydney a couple of years ago so we sort of lost the network that we had we didn't lose but you know everything went to telehealth and now we just see those friends occasionally but um man small town tell you what the community vibe here is amazing both kids have heaps of friends the school has been awesome Arlo started you know in mainstream just our local public school this year with one-on-one support they've been fantastic It's been such a wonderful surprise. I just thought, oh my gosh, you know, we're moving to the sticks. There's going to be no one, no one, no other families with disability. I was so wrong. There's a huge disability community. Of course, there is. You know, you can afford to buy a bigger, flatter house that's more accessible. And (laughs) you can park your massive car, you know, without having to worry about like in Sydney. I don't know how we, I would have ever wrangled our now Kia Carnival in the streets of Leichhardt. So it's just worked out really well. Um, but like you say, community is everything. And mm. that was the best thing that came out of Special for me was that talking to all these parents, every single interview I did, you know, I didn't know these people, but the second we got on the phone or the Skype, you know, this was back pre-Zoom, on the Skype call or had the coffee, I just felt like I had made a friend mm. almost instantly. And that was amazing. Just people that get it, Mm. people that you don't just sense yourself, people that you don't have to, you know, have pity eyes from. That was everything. And as soon as, yeah, once I started talking to people, I was like, wow, this this is it. This is what we actually need. This is the antidote to the obsessions that come with our child's disability. It's other families, other parents. And certainly, you know, the kids and the sibs as well, we're now friends with families that are also disability families out in our neck of the woods and having them over and just, you know, seeing this awesome array of people, you know, groups of people together. It's it's so cool. So, yeah, like I say, community is everything. It's the most important thing for us, I think
3: yeah, I think that's how we've kind of got through, haven't we? And we've got this yeah. um, network of sharing info because it's sometimes it's really hard. There's not kind of a handbook or you know people don't make it easy to find information, and that's how we've kind of learned about what's available, who's good, who's not good, how do you get services what do you do if if you're faced with this situation, you know, and we've got, you know, parents with boys and parents with girls and, you know, sharing the kind of um, gender-related issues as well as some of the disability issues. So um, it's been fantastic.
2: Yeah, you'll learn more from the family community than you will from any doctor is what you find. And certainly, you know, we entered the tube feeding space uh, about a year and a half ago now when Arlo went from eating, you know, puree, in his mouth who suddenly overnight nil by mouth g-tube in and we had a terrible start to that because he went straight onto a synthetic formula that didn't work for him we were told that was the only option for the time being from medical professionals and then you know luckily I was tapped into the Facebook community and parents just jumped on me and said just stop just blend up what he was eating before a little bit more and put that through and we're now on blended fees, which worked beautifully for Arlo, But that experience inspired the magazine that I now publish annually, The Blend, which is a lifestyle magazine for the tube feeding community, because I'm like, gosh, like people just need a better introduction to this space. They need to know that this community is here and they need to see how beautiful it is. You know, I got a designer I used to work at a magazine with to design it for me. And it is, you know, the Vogue living for tube feeding like it's gorgeous (laughs) and why not why shouldn't we have beautiful resources why do we get some ugly pamphlet if we're lucky or stuff that has like children's handwriting in rainbow scrawled all over it when it's meant to be for parents that's right we should have beautiful resources to show us how rich and beautiful this experience can actually be that's right. <laughs>
1: yeah. And that, I think that was the, the nicest thing I loved about your book, how positive it was. And even though, like we said before, my son is so much older and I've been through all this, I still got so much out of it. And I just hope everyone out there reads it because it's a really positive community book. And, yeah, I think I'll go back and, you know, read little chapters here and there. And I'm so grateful that you had some time to spend with us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Like I said, the second I chat with parents like you, I feel like instant friends. We all get each other. It yeah. doesn't matter how long you've been doing this for. And that's that's the beauty of our community. So thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it.
3: Melanie, where can people buy the
2: book? Where you like to buy your book. So it's available at Booktopia. If you like to buy local, it's on Amazon. So you can get it anywhere in the world. Um, there's an audio book as well. And yeah, if you're tube feeding, please have a look at the Blend magazine. It's free to read and download online and if you need sorry this is a total self plug but if you need to help with navigating the NGIS, I've got the NGIS know-how podcast too so lots of resources that hopefully people will find helpful I'm sure we'll definitely have you back on one day
1: to discuss those as well
2: and please come on my podcast as well we'd love (laughs) to thank you thanks Thanks so much guys Bye. bye
0: Thanks for being part of the Loop Me In community today and joining our conversation on raising children with disabilities. Join us for the next episode on some of your favourite platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you would like to support us, please recommend the Loop Me In podcast to your network of parents, carers and providers. If you would like us to cover a topic or invite a guest to chat, please email us at contact at loop-me-in.com.au or go to our website at loop-me-in.com.au If you've got any feedback, Please let us know so we can improve and cover issues you want. And of course, if anything in the podcast today has raised concerns for you, you can contact Beyond Blue on 1300 224636 or Lifeline on 13 1114.